there, and welcome to Season 8 of Build. I'm Arielle, and I'm taking over as your host this season to talk about product-led growth, which if you can sense a theme here, you know, we're big believers that the end-user era is here, and it's changing the way that top software companies are going to market today, and will continue to go to market moving forward. So I'm excited to chat with execs from places like Superhuman, Shopify, HubSpot, SurveyMonkey, a bunch of great organizations that are product-led, and and these folks are ready to share their learnings from pioneering this movement and product-led growth. So on with the show. Excited to have Brian Belfort here with us for the next episode of Season 8. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Super happy to be here. To kick us off, would you mind just sharing a bit about your background and then what you're doing now at Reforge? Yeah, so the story arc of my career is uh, shortly after college, got into the startup tech scene, started my first venture back company during the social gaming boom when Facebook opened up their platform. And uh, that was just like a crazy time. Started a company in that space, um, which was a social gaming platform. We ended up selling that to a company called Tapjoy, which is like a mobile advertising company. Decided to go back to the roller coaster a second time, started another venture back company with a couple of friends of mine called Boundless Learning. We were trying to develop basically a free textbook alternative for college students here in the US, so saving them a few thousand dollars a year. Got pretty far on that one. And uh, we got a couple major hypotheses about that business, right? Got one wrong. So that one didn't work out as well. But then after that, I kind of floated around for a little bit, ended up at HubSpot as the VP of growth about a year and a half before I went public. Myself and a couple others kind of started or led this new products division there that uh, developed the HubSpot CRM, what's now known as HubSpot Sales, and a couple other products. And then after that, I started Reforge. And uh, that's kind of what I've been working on today. Awesome. And funny enough, we actually had another episode this season with Christopher O'Donnell and heard a little bit about the work you did with HubSpot Sales. So excited to hear about all that stuff and the learnings from a different perspective. Yeah, he was, uh, we called him C. Todd. Yeah, C. Todd was uh, one of my main counterparts on that whole effort. Yeah, that was a wild ride in and of itself. Yeah, it sounded like it was a great group. So maybe on Reforge, could you talk us through a little bit more of, you know, what exactly you're doing with Reforge and what you're helping folks learn? Yeah, so it actually stemmed out of my time at HubSpot. So, you know, during our time there, I think like our division when I first started was maybe five, six people, something like that. And uh, by the time I left, it was in the triple digits, so approaching hundreds. And so, of course, during that time, I just would sit in these one-on-ones with my team every week. Somebody would ask me about professional development. I'd go spend hours researching what to recommend them. Nine times out of 10, I would come up totally empty-handed. That made me feel like a terrible manager. And obviously, it was not a great experience for them either. So I decided I was going to like create this course on the side around like how I viewed this emerging function of quote-unquote growth. And um, as I was doing that, I was talking about it with a friend of mine at the time, Andrew Chen. And he was like, hey, I'm thinking I was working on something similar. So we just decided to combine forces. And we created this like super embarrassing MVP of a course. And we decided to launch it on the side and just did way better than we ever expected. And so, you know, we had a couple thousand applications on that first one and a set of great participants and had some great feedback afterwards. And so... I just decided at the time, I was like, look, this is a thread I want to pull on a little bit more. And so I left HubSpot and I started working on Reforge full time. And I'll be honest, at the time, I had no idea like whether it was a big or a small company or like what we were ultimately tapping into. 
What we want to do is just help professionals do the best work of their career. And so everything about just like managing our career and learning has just fundamentally changed. We're just like constantly tackling new problems all the time. The pathways are completely ambiguous. Every company defines product manager or whatever role you want to insert there differently. And so it just becomes really, really hard for what we call mid-career professionals, people who are already on a track to really figure out and kind of move faster down that track if they want to. And so what we do is at the moment is we partner with people that we feel like are pushing the frontier of their function. These are typically like directors, VPs, C-level folks at some of the fastest growing companies um, in tech. And we spend hundreds of hours researching with them. And we build these like six-week programs around kind of these emerging topics within tech. And of course, the first area we started with was my background and Andrew Chen's background, which is kind of on this product-driven growth topic, but uh, we'll have more topic areas soon. That's awesome. And it sounds like it's all under the umbrella of this emerging function, as you called it, growth. And obviously growth in and of itself is a pretty broad term, but a lot of people are talking about growth as an emerging function. So what exactly does growth mean to you when you talk about it in the context of Reforge? Growth is both an amazing term name for it and a terrible name for it. Amazing because obviously everybody wants growth and so it kind of gives it leverage. But as you pointed out, it like means so many different things. And so it can uh, cause just a crazy amount of confusion. And so I don't really think about growth as its own separate function. It's really kind of a discipline that is a combination of basically a set of knowledge and viewpoints combined with a set of like tools. And by tools, I don't mean like tech tools. I mean like thought tools and primarily in growth, we use the tool of experimentation to solve problems. And you kind of combine those two things across product, marketing, engineering, design to essentially kind of create and solve more growth for your business. I think there's a lot of really bad information or kind of preconceptions out there about like growth is just about optimizations or like growth is basically just like a subdiscipline of marketing. And it's not. It's really about how do you understand how does your product grow? And that sounds like a simple question, but you can ask like multiple people in your company that question and more than likely they're going to give you all different answers. And that represents like a huge problem. But if you really understand like the ins and outs of like how your product grows, you can then understand like where are the biggest constraints and points of leverage in that answer. And then you form the right cross-functional team to like address those constraints and points of leverage. And the best way to address those constraints and points of leverage is to basically take an experimental approach. And you can do experiments and tests against validating like new products and features all the way down to optimizations, right? It can be anything in between. But that's kind of how I think about the discipline of growth. It's not necessarily a function. And to be honest, like when I see it as a separate function in the org, it tends not to work very well for very long. So really trying to just like push the message of like, this is something that you embrace across the different functions as like a cross-functional topic. And when you say, you know, it's something that you 
assemble an interdisciplinary team to tackle. Is that more ad hoc in your view, where it's someone who, you know, from sales who otherwise has another focus and from marketing who otherwise has another focus who are coming together to run experiments ad hoc? Or is it an interdisciplinary team that is, you know, sort of evergreen or its own team in a sense? It can be either. I mean, essentially, like when you really understand like how your product grows, what you tend to find are these surface areas in that growth model that are their key surface areas that you basically need to deploy long-term teams around. And so like a common example of that would be like user onboarding or activation, right? And the reason that typically always has a long-term team against it is because every new user or customer kind of goes through that surface area and uh, that surface area has a massive impact on like your long-term retention rates which is really kind of the center of like any growth model. And so that's an example of like where a lot of companies as they grow, they tend to form dedicated teams around because it's so important. It's always changing. It's always evolving. And so it needs that dedicated team. But then other times you might actually identify a constraint in your growth model that doesn't necessarily have that long lifetime. It's, it might be like more of a project-based thing. And there you kind of spin up the right interdisciplinary team to address that thing and to figure out like what that team should look like. It's really about like understanding what the problem is first and then working your way backwards to like, well, what are the right mixture of skill sets to actually address this constraint and address this problem rather than kind of like a predetermined set. But most of the time, the most common formation, you're typically talking about a cross-functional product team, a PM, a couple engineers, a designer, possibly a data analyst, possibly a marketer. If sales is one of your big motions, you know, it's possible that you put a salesperson on that team. We certainly did in the early days of the HubSpot sales product because we were defining like a new bottoms up product led sales assisted growth motion, right? So figuring out that growth motion and that point of leverage really, we needed a salesperson involved to like help us design the playbook around it. But, you know, once again, it just, it always just starts with, Understanding that key fundamental question of informing a framework of like, how does your product grow, figuring out those points of leverage and constraint, and then figuring out what is the best way to address those constraints. And digging in on, you know, this product-led growth model that you took at HubSpot during your time there, you know, in this sort of emerging sales tool ecosystem. How did you think about deciding upon the best way to go to market with that tool set? And then more broadly, you know, how do you think about the best way to go to market for a new product or company? That's a big question. So the motion that we went through at HubSpot was that when I joined, we were a single product company. We had like the marketing automation product that was growing at a pretty consistent rate of like 50% year over year. You know, we had an eye going towards public. And we know that we needed to kind of continue that growth rate. And so part of the big bet was that we knew that we needed new product verticals to expand into to kind of continue that type of motion. Then the second part of that bet was, do we think we can go into those new spaces in exactly the same way that we did with the marketing product, which HubSpot really, Mike Volpe and team really wrote the book on you know, content marketing and inbound marketing, which they coined. And, you know, we looked at a lot of these new verticals and we decided that we really felt like the future was more of like a product-led motion. Before my time there, I think Brian Halligan, the CEO, did like a whole tour on the West Coast and was talking to 
founder of Dropbox and like some of the other early players in the space and like just be kind of became uh, a believer in it. And so we looked at those spaces and we kind of had those two constraints, right? That's what we wanted to do. But realistically, we planted multiple bets. It wasn't like we nailed it right out of the gate. There was like a couple products that we tried before that just didn't, that we ended up actually killing. And so, you know, one of the key things that I brought inside and we talked a lot about internally was just that we really needed to design a product that was really built for the individual first. Um, There was like all these key elements, which are pretty well known now, but were pretty new back then about being individual first. How do you build a quick time to value? How do you establish the habit around these of usage around these tools? And then how do you leverage that usage into different expansion within the org through like multiple different vectors? And so that evolution, like it took a while to really nail and get right. We not only killed those first couple products, but the first version of HubSpot sales, it was actually called Sidekick. We built for the individual. We had some like really quick time to value. It was kind of viral, but not super viral at the beginning. And so we did a lot of work around that in the first phase. We really got that working. And then we figured out how to start to monetize some of that usage. And then our first usage was like this $10 tier. And, and then that started to work. But then to like make the math work on that $10 tier, we needed to address like a much wider market with this tool than just like sales professionals. And so then we started going after like a much wider market. And then, you know, at some point we decided that wasn't the right approach. So we pulled back from that. We introduced a new higher price tier initially at $25. But then we had a problem with that tier because like the self-serve motion wasn't converting people to that tier at a high enough rate. And the sales motion was too expensive. So we killed that tier and then created a $50 tier, which supported the sales motion, right? So on and so forth. And so like my whole point here is like this was, we had some principles in mind, but it was a constant evolution to get it right. And I know like I stay in touch with a lot of the team who still works on it today and it's still evolving like over and over again. And so I think like any go-to-market strategy for any type of company, is really just about like having a hypothesis for basically it's very simple. Like who's the target audience? What's the problem that you're solving for them? How are you going to differentiate against that problem? You know, what is the natural frequency of this problem? And then how can you kind of serve like that individual if you want to go that route in a frictionless way? But there's also a bunch of problems out there that don't need to be kind of the self-serve bottoms up motion. So it's certainly like the hot thing right now But I typically find like when something gets hot, there's a hidden opportunity of like doing the exact opposite. So my guess is we're still on like the upswing of like the bottoms up motion right now. When the pendulum swings the attention so far in one direction, my guess is that's going to open up space to build products that aren't necessarily that motion. So I think it just swings back and forth. So that was a long story. That all being said, it's just a system of hypotheses of like just combining like your understanding of the audience with your hypothesis of like how this thing grows. And you're just constantly like testing against those two things to see like what's fitting and what's not fitting to kind of evolve your way to success. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you truly practiced what you're now preaching in terms of experimentation, right? That's how you got there. Trying to. You know, I think I'm kind of deep in the topic right now because we have a new like experimentation program coming out this spring for the fall. And, you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about internally with our subject matter experts and stuff is that of like how you use this tool of experimentation to not only tackle things like optimization problems, but you 
use it to basically break down much larger problems into a set of smaller problems and hypotheses, figure out like what is the right order of operations or combination of those things that you need to like test and validate first, and then try to test against those things as efficiently as possible. And typically this is like you navigate your way to success. And the best analogy I like for this is like uh, Sean Klaus, who was the head of growth at Atlassian. He's now the SVP of product at MuleSoft. He always talks about this game of battleship. You know, you've got this battlefield, right? And uh, you, so you have a sense of the problem space. You know, you send shots over and these shots are kind of like pings. And, you know, you sometimes you get like a miss, a miss, a miss, but then you get a hit. Yeah, and then when you get that hit, you just like double down, right? And you just go after that hit as hard as you can. And then at some point, you kind of sink that battleship or capture that opportunity. It's kind of a negative analogy. And then you need to start sending pings again, right? To find like that next ship, that next opportunity in that problem space. And so I always loved that analogy because I thought it captured a little bit of this process pretty well. Totally. Yeah, I love that analogy. As you think about, you mentioned virality earlier as something you guys were trying to inflict, you know, with Sidekick and then with HubSpot CRM and eventually got right through this experimentation process. You know, a lot of people today talk about dominating a market as quickly as they can and creating that sort of hockey stick growth or exponential growth. What types of tactics have you seen work best to inflict that kind of exponential customer growth? I think you can think about it in a couple different dimensions. So I guess I would back up and say that like, not every company needs the hockey stick type growth. And I think actually in some places that actually might not be the right way to grow. I'll take Reforge as an example, like in the education space, I think some of the failures that have happened in the education space is because they've forced that type of growth curve. And as a result, have really kind of degraded quality and other factors that are a big part of like their value prop. And so by forcing that in the short term, you actually end up kind of topping out or flattening in the mid to long term. And so I would just like take a step back. And obviously we live in the VC tech world. And so that kind of fits a lot of paradigms, but not all. But if you are going to go after that, there's, I guess, like more of a strategic, there's two dimensions of the strategic component and then there's kind of the executional component. So the strategic component, you can think about it in two ways. The first would just be understanding like what your growth loops are. So we talk about this a lot at Reforge that the fastest growing companies that have the hockey stick type growth don't take the shape of a funnel. They take the form of like a system of loops. These loops are self-reinforcing and what they do is they create a compound interest effect. And so the companies that are really good at maintaining that hockey stick growth are the ones that are able to layer on multiple loops over a period of time. And so if you look at a company like LinkedIn, which has been around for a while, so we can talk about you know, their evolution of loops is that they originally started off with a viral loop of users inviting other users. They sequenced that to like a user-generated content loop around the profiles being indexed in Google, they then sequence that into another type of user-generated content loop around the publishing business. They layered on sales loops for the B2B products on top of that. And all while that, they also have a whole other system of retention loops that they keep kind of deploying as well. And that's kind of what's been keeping that business grow over and over and over again. And so understanding how like you sequence those loops over time to maintain that compound interest effect is kind of one part of it. But the second part of it, I think they kind of fit together is really thinking about how you are adding and enabling like new use cases 
in your product. So let's take an example of like what a use case is. So Credit Karma, I think, is like a company that has done this pretty well. They started off as a free monthly credit monitoring product. And it had this really natural retention loop built into it, which is like every month you'd get an update on your credit score, you'd like kind of come check it out, right? So that was kind of the first use case um, that they really solved for. So the second use case that they then layered on was this use case of like, well, I need to find financial products. And this is kind of the use case they really monetized, right? So I need a new credit card, I need a new loan, I need something like that. And they were in an advantageous position to serve that use case because they already had your credit score data so they could match you and personalize and so on and so forth. But they haven't stopped there, right? So they've now layered on another two more use cases. One was around the tax product where they have now like a free tax product and they just layered on another use case, which was like a savings product. And so this is essentially kind of what I was working on at HubSpot in terms of new product verticals is that you can't just add existing loops to an existing use case. Oftentimes you have to add new use cases to enable new loops of the business. And so this whole thing kind of like works together like as a complete system and you're like constantly moving and layering like over time as you sort of start to hit diminishing returns of the ceiling on one of these things and you kind of need to open up a new ceiling for the next. Yeah. I love the way you talk about adding new use cases because, you know, I think one of the places where a lot of folks get stuck is there's only so many invite your friends buttons that you can add to a given application. And so how else can you continue to proliferate an organization or grow across individuals? And so I think adding additional use cases, finding new ways to add value, new things that more people might be interested in is a really clever way of thinking about it. I haven't heard someone quite articulate it that way before. There's the flip side of it too, which is that building a new use case for your company is a really big bet. And one of the biggest mistakes I see is like when you build a new use case, they don't have any sort of hypothesis of how they're going to grow that use case. They just kind of assume that whatever growth motion that got them to where they are today is the one that is going to actually help grow that other use case as well. And sometimes that's true, but oftentimes it's not. And so that's exactly like what we saw at HubSpot was that while our old growth motion certainly contribute to some growth, it like didn't fuel it. And so we had to like navigate and figure out our way of to that more of that product led growth model to like figure out like what were the loops that were going to drive, you know, that use case. So, you know, navigating this is like really hard. And like, I think some of the best minds out there that I've learned a lot of this from are people like Casey Winters, who's now like the chief product officer at Eventbrite and Sean Klaus, who I who I talked to about earlier. And of course, Andrew, you know, who's now at A16E, but uh, it kind of goes both ways is like, I think sometimes we're too eager to solve new use cases without really understanding, you know, what's going to drive them. For sure. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap us up. So Brian, thank you so much again for taking the time and joining us today. Really appreciate it and appreciate all the insights. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or really wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And please give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce daily content on our blog, and you can also follow us on Twitter at OpenViewVenture and subscribe to our newsletter that's sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Until next time.